King's Landing is both a city and a curse. Aegon the Conqueror was the first king to land there. His first conquest, a tiny village at the mouth of the Blackwater River, where he raised a wooden fort. When it became clear that Aegon would earn his title, people flocked to the fort and renamed it King's Landing in his honor. The ploy succeeded, and Aegon chose King's Landing for his capital over older and more beautiful cities like Old Town and anywhere else. The carrying of royal favor thus became the foundation of the city, and blood its bricks. Maegor the Cruel, Aegon's son, completed the city's famous red keep to hold the trappings of power, the royal family, the king's guard, and the Iron Throne. To maintain the new castle's secrets, Maegor murdered all its masons and craftsmen at a feast, which he catered with the new castle servants, who soon found all its secrets for themselves. When the Faith Militant challenged his rule, Maegor raised their sept of remembrance to the ground with them inside at prayer and erected the dragon pit on the ashes. But the great dragons it housed were attacked by the very lowborn people they were meant to terrify. Thousands of people died in the attempt, but hundreds of thousands lived in King's Landing. And now the only dragons in the city are golden. Like most kings, Aegon and Maegor missed a central truth. That a king lands is less important than what he lands on. The people, who will never visit his red keep, or his dragon pit, or any of his noble monuments to nobility, because they're too busy holding up his realm. Without the slums of Fleabottom and the poor and desperate folk it produces, who would fight the king's wars and cook the king's meals, and admire him as he rode past at speed? Without its winding dark alleys and pot shops, where would the Red Keep empty its sewage? Of all kinds. Without the Street of Flour, the King would have no bread. Without the Street of Steel, the King's armies would have no swords, armor, or victories. Without the Street of Looms, the King would go naked. And without the Street of Silk, he wouldn't enjoy it. Without the Street of Sisters, the King would have no humility. It leads from the ruin of the Dragon Pit to the ruin of the Great Sept of Bela, where the Targaryens and Baratheons buried their kings, until Cersei Lannister unburied them. Now those kings are ashes, scattered on the wind, and nobody marked where they landed. A palace without people is a tomb. A realm without people is scenery. It should not be hard to recruit lords into a war against an enemy known as the Mad King. We can even understand the lords who chose to honor their oaths and fight for him. But the Krakens of House Greyjoy set out Robert's rebellion on Pike with their tentacles up their arse. My father Quellen was old, and sitting is what old people do best. Well, second best. He would have set out the whole war if not for my brother and me. We convinced him that nobody would fear the walls of the sea if we curled up by our fires while others feasted on the spoils of the Mad King. So the old man creaked into his rusty armor and set sail for the reach, only to be routed by Tyrell longboats. When my father sadly fell in battle, my older brother Balin beat a tactical retreat to his own inheritance as the new lord of the Iron Islands. 
I'd rather die in the Reach than live on the Iron Islands. <laughs> the roses are pretty as pluck. But my brother was getting old and felt that longing to sit. And the sea stone chair was as good a place as any. Within a few years, he realized that sitting is only fun if everyone else has to stand. He had the priest reforge. No, that's not right. They picked up sticks on the beach, wove them into a new ancient driftwood crown, and declared Balaam the king of the Iron Islands. Unfortunately for my brother, the other king in Westeros, Robert Baratheon, was famously bad at sharing, and his father by law and warden of the West, Tywin Lannister, had a mighty fleet at Lannisport within striking distance of the Iron Islands. Yes, you were very clever, and how brave, burning our ships at anchor in the night. <laughs> they would have burned the same in daylight. Iron's a lazy beast. You didn't rouse until long after I set fire to a proud mane. I planned it all, you know. My first torch took your father's flagship. If it makes you feel better, we didn't loot it. Out of respect. And time. I don't think I ever saw Robert happier than the day he heard about the Greyjoy Rebellion. He'd been king for a handful of years, and many handfuls of other things. And it was clear to him and everyone else how ill-suited he was to rule. But battle he could do. Unfortunately, by the time we raised our army, we seemed to be winning the war. Balon's eldest son, your nephew, died trying to storm Seaguard, and his men were thrown back into the arms of their drowned god. If we wanted battle, we'd have to hurry north before the Ironborn put down their own rebellion. And we would have, if I've had my way. Rebelling was a stupid idea. Never stopped your people before. Before Balon put those sticks on his head, I told him that if he wanted to rule the Iron Islands, all he had to do was give King Robert a tour of them. Why waste our forces fighting a war we couldn't win for a place our enemy wouldn't want? With the Iron Fleet, we could reef not just Westeros, but the rich lands beyond the Sunset Sea. But my brother was too attached to that sea stone chair. He commanded me to sail the Iron Fleet against Robert's navy before he could ferry his army to Pike. A navy commanded by Robert's younger brother, Stannis, most known for sitting in a besieged castle eating dogs and horses. Remind me, how did you fare against a man who'd never commanded ships in battle? Nearly too well. Stannis smashed your Iron Fleet at Fair Isle. After I sailed it into a strait where our numbers and the size of our ships would work against us, it took some doing to convince my men to rush into such an obvious trap. <laughs> Stannis was not a subtle man. You would rather claim treason than defeat. Victory would have only delayed it. We couldn't hold off Robert's forces forever. But we could waste enough ironborn that we wouldn't even fill our own islands after the war. I made sure the silence escaped. That was enough for me. That and watching your army smash my brother's castle soon afterwards. Why didn't you just abandon him after Fair Isle? Why risk your precious life fighting for him at Pike? I wanted to kill the best knights in Westeros. You failed. So did you. I expected pursuit when I fled Pike on the silence. 
But I suppose you were too busy not punishing my brother to not punish the man who burned your father's fleet. And now, I'm back. You were back. But what is the king of the Iron Islands when he's off the Iron Islands? I'll never see those shit-stained rocks again. But I'm getting old, and I find myself wanting to sit down, as my father and brother did in their time. They just chose the wrong chair. Aegon, fourth of his name, is remembered by history as the Unworthy. Quite a feat, considering the other kings of Westeros. But even in a family not known for equanimity, Aegon stands out for spiteful incompetence. He tore apart the realm simply because he couldn't rule himself, much less Westeros. As a young prince, Aegon's wit made him beloved at court and won him forgiveness for youthful indiscretions. But the cold steel of the Iron Throne didn't temper his passions. King Aegon proclaimed that if he had to spend his days being pricked by a thousand swords, he'd spend his nights pricking others with his one. Lords sent their daughters from court so they would not catch the king's eye, whilst other lords summoned the daughters to court, so they would. The only woman in whom he took no pleasure was his sister and wife, Nares, even after she gave him a son and heir, Daeron. Perhaps Aegon was jealous of her supposed love for his brother, the legendary hero Prince Aemon, the Dragon Knight. Aegon was most certainly jealous of him. Not of his bravery or honor, but how young maidens swooned and old whores cried at the songs about him. But most likely Aegon disregarded his wife and son because he chafed at restraints of any kind, be they the bonds of marriage or patrimony or even reason. When Prince Daeron objected to his father's foolish plan to invade Dawn, Aegon incited a lickspittle lord to accuse the queen of adultery with Aemon, making Daeron illegitimate. Prince Aemon defended the queen's honor in trial by combat. But while the lord's claim publicly died with him, no sword can kill a rumor. Out of spite and pique, Aegon had seeded doubt into his own heir's claim to the throne which bore bitter fruit with the birth of another son, the bastard Damon Waters by the king's own cousin. Raised in the Red Keep on account of his mother's royal blood, Damon grew tall and powerful and excelled at all the martial skills that men wrongly value in leaders. Instead of protecting his own heir from a rival, Aegon knighted Damon at twelve and shocked the realm by bestowing on him the conqueror's own Valyrian steel sword. He even let the boy renounce his common bastard's name and take the Targaryen sword's name for his own, becoming Daemon Blackfire. Still, though a name can change, blood can't. And Daeron was Aegon's only true-born son. Until he wasn't. On his deathbed, Aegon forever earned his epithet by legitimizing all his bastards, from the base-born sons of whores to the great bastards of noble ladies including Daemon. Fittingly, Aegon's last act was to thrust himself into the realm and seed chaos. A Targaryen without self-restraint may have led Westeros to the brink of ruin, but the Highborn pushed it over. 
Though Daron governed justly and wisely, correcting the worst excesses of his father's rule, many lords had grown rich off these excesses and did not approve of Daron's reforms, particularly the peace he struck with Dawn. The malcontents rallied to Daemon and whispered that he should be king instead of his brother, whom, thanks to Aegon, many suspected was a bastard. At first, Daemon indulged these lords out of courtesy and vanity, but over time their grievances and flattery wore down his objections, along with any sense of obligation to the half-brother who had granted him lands and a wife. Daemon agreed to claim the throne by right of birth and, more importantly, arms. A wheel with two hubs will not turn, and a kingdom with two kings will burn, as the saying goes. Not that such a cost ever stopped anyone with even the remotest claim and opportunity, much less House Blackfire. Their rebellions consumed tens of years and thousands of lives. First Damon's own, then his son, Damon II, who reigned for a night. Then another son, Hagon, crowned by Bittersteel, another legitimized great bastard who had founded the Golden Company to support the Blackfire claim. When Hagon was executed, Bittersteel crowned Hagon's eldest son, Daemon III, who in turn was slain by their Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Sir Duncan the Tall. Finally, Maelys the Monstrous fell to Sir Barristan Selmy in the War of the Ninepenny Kings, and the Blackfire Rebellion ended with the extinction of the entire line, as is appropriate. Fire is only black when it is burned to ash. Perhaps that was the true problem with the Targaryens. The blood of the dragon runs hot and fire consumes. Perhaps what Westeros needs is a ruler born not from fire, but from snow. For thousands of years, when my people looked south, they saw only a wall of ice where lonely crows perched. The Nealers had stolen our horizon when our tools shattered against frozen rock, or our boats capsized in rough seas, or bears and shadow cats snatched our game. We cursed the soft men of the green lands beyond the wall. We cursed, and we envied. Huddled around our fires, we told tales of how the southerners lived. How their stone houses touched the clouds and their bellies touched the ground. How their women fainted at a sign of blood and wouldn't knife a man even when he slept. How they wouldn't miss a few swords or rings or daughters. But now we've seen the real South and we have to admit we're disappointed. Southerners live life bent over in the fields, in courts, in bed. They drink too little beer and they eat too many plants. In the north, a man's worth is in his hands and his stories, not his fancy name and fancy talk. With good steel, a man can hunt, kill and live. What can a man do with gold, except shine? But what should I expect from a people who all want to sit on the iron chair? A waste of good metal. You can make better seats, I've used them. How am I supposed to get comfortable on a bunch of swords? Ah, now I see why all your queens are fighting over it. Maybe your southern asses are soft enough to take it, but give me a proper seat any day, or a proper southern ass, as long as it isn't in the south.
from what I hear, King's Landing is even hotter and madder than Winterfell. Full of oath-breakers, rich shits and tiny women. They'll kneel to anyone with an army, or gold, or special blood. Nobody can tell me if it's more red, or less red, or what. Maybe it's purple. If the Dragon Queen wants a bunch of kneelers to be stumping along after her, she can have them. But my people are right enough. The dead are gone from the north, but the south is full of them. You just can't tell the difference. The coin of Ares, second of his name, had landed on madness. But half the coins of the Targaryens had landed so. Yet only Ares would be known as the Mad King, thanks in no small part to the defiance of Duskendale. Duskendale was the greatest port on Blackwater Bay until Aegon built King's Landing. As the capital grew richer and more prosperous, it sucked ships and gold away from Duskendale. To halt its long decline, the Lord of Duskendale, Sir Dennis Darklin, petitioned King Eris for a royal charter that would allow him to levy his own port fees and taxes, which would obviously be lower than in King's Landing. The hand of the king, Tywin Lannister, refused. But, knowing of the tension between the Hand and its king, Sir Dennis invited the king to Duskendale to evaluate his petition himself rather than deferring to his Hand. When Tywin admonished the king to refuse, as any sensible adviser would, a petulant and bristling Ares instead accepted, travelling to Duskendale with a small retinue and only one of his king's guard. As soon as Ares stepped within the city, Sir Dennis seized him, killing the King's Guard and the few others who dared defend their king. Ares was hauled to the dungeons to have his beard pulled and have other petty cruelties inflicted on his royal person. Lord Tywin immediately raised an army and marched on Duskendale, but Sir Dennis threatened to kill the king at the first signs of an assault. If Sir Dennis hoped to force Tywin to offer terms, he didn't know Lord Tywin, who refused to even parley until Sir Dennis released the king and surrendered. The royal army surrounded the city and the royal navy blockaded it. Sir Dennis had clearly not anticipated such obstinacy, nor that the king's hand would be in no rush to save the maddening king, when, as Lord Tywin himself pointed out, the realm had a better option in the king's much more stable son, Prince Rhaegar. After six months, Lord Tywin's patience was at an end. Or at least, none could claim he acted recklessly if he now stormed the city and Sir Dennis killed the king. But the dutiful and honourable Sir Barristan the Bold volunteered to infiltrate the city and rescue his king single-handedly, as befit his king's guard oath. Tywin couldn't refuse such valour, publicly, and so begrudged Sir Barristan one night. Then he would storm the city and put every man, woman and child to the sword. With only his hands, Sir Barristan climbed the city walls in the dark of night and snuck through the city disguised as a beggar, evading patrols and suspicious townspeople. When he reached the walls of the city keep, the Dun Ford, he scaled those by hand as well, even dispatching the wall guard before he could sound an alarm. With incredible bravery and luck, 
Sir Barristan made his way to the dungeons and freed his king. Then Sir Barristan's luck ran out. A cry went up through the castle. Someone had discovered the king was gone. With horns and trumpets blaring an alarm, Sir Barristan cut their way to the stables, avenging his slain king's guard brother but taking an arrow to his chest. Slipping through the castle gate just as it closed, the wounded Sir Barristan and Ares rode through the roused town, racing for the city walls and beyond it the safety of the royal army. Lord Tywin's archers raced forward to clear the walls of defenders, and Sir Barristan the Bold earned immortality by delivering King Ares to the waiting, if not welcoming, arms of his hand. Without his hostage, Sir Dennis surrendered and begged mercy from the same king he'd imprisoned. Most men would have had none. Ares had less. He commanded Sir Dennis to be executed along with any man, woman, or child who bore his family name. And anyone who once had. As for Sir Dennis's foreign wife, who had urged his defiance, Ares commanded that her tongue and womanly parts be torn out and she be burned alive. It was his first time passing such a sentence. It must have given him a taste for it. For the king rescued from Duskendale was not the same king who'd entered it. Many men would crack after six months in a dark cell, being mocked, prodded, and tweaked. Ares had arrived cracked. Now he was shattered. For years he would refuse to leave the Red Keep. Encouraged now died by his worried advisers, since he also refused to allow any blades near his person, even to shave his beard, cut his hair, and trim his nails. He began to see enemies in every shadow, who vanished only when the fires burned. Though the Targaryens had forged the Seven Kingdoms in fire and blood, they didn't govern with them. Until they did. Maegor, first of his name, defined council as confirmation and disagreement as treason. Three grand maesters tried to avert disaster. Instead of taking their advice, Maegor took their heads. As a second son and exile, Maegor was never meant to rule. But no sooner did Mago hear of his brother's death than he flew Balerion to Dragonstone and demanded the crown. Only the Grand Maester dared object that the throne should pass to his older brother's firstborn son, Prince Aegon. Magor insisted that the Iron Throne should go to the man with the strength to seize it and beheaded the Grand Maester. Prince Aegon soon took him at his word. He claimed his father's dragon, raised a host of Westermen, and marched on King's Landing while Magor was in Old Town. Far from the capital, Magor couldn't rally an army to match Aegon's. So he ordered his banners to swarm Aegon's larger army from all sides, confusing the young prince and slowing his advance. Beneath the god's eye, Magor's disparate forces came together and attacked Aegon as Magor himself swooped down from the clouds. For the first time since the Doom of Valyria, dragon fought dragon in the sky. But Aegon's dragon was no match for Valyrian the Dread, who was four times its size. When Aegon fell to his death, his army broke and fled. For slaying his own nephew, Mago forever after became known as the Cruel. Though, of course, not to his face. 
The next Grand Maester dared object to Magor taking a third wife when taking his second wife had ruined his brother's reign because Magor's first wife was the niece of the High Septon. But Magor beheaded the Grand Maester and declared war on the faith. He set fire to the Riverlands, the Westerlands, and the Reach in a campaign to root out disloyal lords and sponsored a more pliant High Septon. None of it worked. Magor may have returned to the capital with 2,000 skulls of the Faith Militant, but most of them weren't soldiers. They were simple folk who had sheltered the outlaw Septons, or turned out in droves to hear them denounce the wicked king. The third Grand Maester dared to declare Magor the father of his own heir. But when his second wife miscarried and Magor saw the monstrous stillbirth, Magor beheaded the Grand Maester for his insolent adherence to truth. So he had no one to warn him when his third wife, sensing an advantage, declared that his second wife had been unfaithful and produced a list of potential fathers of the misshapen child. Not only did Magor execute his second wife and her father, his own hand of the king, but he also marched on her family's castle and slaughtered everyone who bore a drop of her family's blood. But his third wife couldn't give him a child either. Desperate to cement his stolen throne with an heir, Magor took three wives at once, known as the Black Brides because each were women he'd widowed in his wars. All three women grew full with child in time, but each gave birth to the same twisted monstrosities as his second wife. One need not be a maester, much less a grand maester, to deduce the common thread here. Though Magor stamped out the fires of rebellion, his cruelty and fear only scattered more tinder over the realm until even the smallest ember could set the realm alight. One day, the Faith Militant emerged from the shadows, and the Lord sent to quash it joined it instead. His hand resigned and retired to his island home. Finally, House Baratheon declared for Magor's own nephew as the rightful king. The Lannisters, Tyrells, and Arryns soon joined adding more than half the might of Westeros to the prince and his two dragons, which became three when Magor's niece and involuntary Black Bride stole away from the Red Keep with her dragon. Her treason wasn't even the last. Magor's own Lord Admiral sailed the royal fleet into his nephew's harbor, but most fitting of all, when Magor tried to send ravens to call his banners, he found that his fourth Grand Maester had learned from his predecessors and fled. Magor spent one final night on the Iron Throne. He was found in the morning with his wrists slashed and one of the throne's blades jutting from his throat. Nobody knows if it was one of his queens or king's guard or one of the thousands who wanted him dead or even Magor himself, frustrated that his body had failed his will. Whoever the culprit, no doubt he died as all tyrants do believing that history would vindicate him. It hasn't. History may be written with fire and blood, but histories aren't. As any good advisor could have warned him.